Imagine you picked up the most important book in the world. A book with words that can transform lives. Included in this book are highlights and notes in the margin. This is the Notable Podcast. And these are the discussions of twin pastors who share their underlining and highlighting with you. This is Season 7, Life Reframed. A podcast on Ecclesiastes. Well, hey, everybody hit subscribe so you can see our technological failures. That's what <laughs> I, I am excited. I want to <laughs> move past this technological glitch, but um, please, we, we're, we're getting right into the biblical text tonight. We're starting with Ecclesiastes chapter one. Please do hit subscribe on YouTube. We're brand new at this. Thank you for the grace. I know you guys are giving it to us. And with that, Timothy, I know you had some introductory comments you wanted to make too. Yeah, I, I do. I do. And if if you, hopefully, our tech is working here now. If you can look to the right of the screen there, I want to explain what, what, what that is. Last time, we had a live chat failure. <laughs> and I think... It looks like the live chat is working tonight, so praise God for that. And I, I see people chatting in, so welcome. Thanks for being here. Somebody did email me, Heather did actually last week, and I, and I thought this is a perfect way to start episode number two. It's like the perfect introduction to what we're wanting to talk about tonight. So tonight we are we're going east of Eden, and I'll, we'll explain what that that means as we as we get started here. But um, Heather did an amazing thing just reflecting on last week's episode, and she put together what's called a word cloud. Is everybody familiar with uh, what, a, what a word cloud is? Um, she put into that first word cloud, which is at the top of your screen on the left-hand side, uh, the, I think that's the, the first chapter of Genesis. And, and that's going to become really significant tonight, the first few chapters of Genesis, and we'll, we'll show you why. But then in the middle of your screen, she actually put the entire book of Ecclesiastes in there. And this is, and this is what she wrote. I asked, what, is, what does this mean? Like, what kind of insights do you have? And this is what she wrote, and I really, I really appreciated it. She said, looking at the whole book through was telling. The center word is all, so you can see a big all in there. And like you've said, there is a tension circling the all between God and time and meaninglessness and do. It's like they're competing for attention, which I think they want. That that might be what the book is about. If God were in his rightful place in the center, then all would not be surrounded by meaninglessness and chaos. So this is, this is a really great vis- visualization between the, the beginning of Genesis chapter one and God's good creation and the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, Heather, if you're out there tonight, genius, genius, because what we're going to see is that Ecclesiastes as a book is east of Eden, or in other words, this is after Adam and Eve and the family's been expelled outside the garden. And now what? So th- this is going to be our, our main theme tonight. And please do chat in. We, I, I love that. 
If you got questions, um, put them in the chat. We'll get to them, God willing. Um, encourage each other on there. Comment. Open things up even wider in the book. That, that's kind of what we're hoping to do. And so with that, Jonathan, I want to let you get us into, I think we wanted to get into the opening verses. Yeah, put them you, up on the screen there. Yeah, put them up on the screen. We we we're using this language east of Eden. This is of course a very famous um, quote. The great American author John Steinbeck writes a novel about this, and and he his inspiration. He calls it east of Eden. He considered other other titles for his work as well, but it really is simply a meditation on Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter four. And there, uh, just one verse to read to you there, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So he's really doing a commentary on um, the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter four. Uh, we're picking up that language here. This is very biblical language, east of Eden to try to give you a, a meaningful handle on these verses that we're about to get into. So kind of hold on to that handle here just for a second. And let's just read this um, beautiful poetry together. This is, this is phenomenal. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is God's word. There it is. That, that is, this is what's called the prologue of Ecclesiastes. And if I can kind of set the scene, what we're going to do tonight is look at this section three you know in three different sections i jonathan is that right That's what and i'll try to show that to you and i'm gonna mark this up a little bit so we're gonna take verse one and we're gonna take verse two we're gonna have something to say about quite a bit to say about each of those verses then we'll, we'll take verse three separately and then we're gonna take this poem right here the whole thing verses four to 11. And we'll try to um, outline that and give you some handles for taking that, that home. And let's just, so let's just start into 
Can we start into verse one, Jonathan? The, the words the teacher, of the teacher, Eli, son, the of son of David, king in Jerusalem. There's some significant things in that passage that we need to look at. The first is that he doesn't out himself. Not totally. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, usually th this is what Proverbs chapter one says. So he exactly he doesn't he doesn't give us his name, right? He, he, he doesn't tell us who he is. Not really. He just gives us his titles. So in, this is in direct contrast to Proverbs chapter one, verse one, where there he says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of, of Israel. So it's almost like he, for some reason, he leaves out his name. And there's, there's different ways of trying to understand that. Uh, some commentators think that Solomon actually feels shame. It, his name means peace. And if indeed, like I've been pitching to you, that this is Solomon kind of at the end of his life, he is um, judged harshly in, in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, I think it's by the Chronicler where he he's actually he falls into idolatry because of all his wives and and he's judged because of that uh, solomon and so, so some commentators will say he's ashamed because i think solomon means you get this right peace peace so he just wants to set his name aside I'm, i don't really buy that i don't think that's biblical that he, he's feeling so much guilt um and this guilt hasn't been removed so he doesn't want to put his name out there i don't think that's quite right some people actually think it's because he didn't write the book <laughs> and these are typically uh liberal scholars that that will say well he, he just didn't he didn't write the book and they'll call it a royal fiction like everybody sort of knew that solomon didn't didn't write it so he doesn't put his his name out there but i i actually think the reason why he doesn't put his name on there is to put emphasis to put emphasis on, on these terms, um, teacher, right here, the words of the teacher. We got to say quite a bit about that. And also his location and his lineage. Yeah. And we're going to say a whole lot about all of it. <laughs> yeah. T tell us about, tell us about the teacher, Jonathan. No, yeah. yeah, and sometimes sometimes it's translated as the preacher. NIV has the teacher. I prefer the preacher. And we're 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 gonna say that he's evoking a churchly scene. So I think a preacher is probably more appropriate for that kind of thing. And uh, one thing I want to say about it. So we, this is this it, the, the Hebrew here is very difficult, and there's a few options with it. We're, we don't need to go into that right now. Um, what I will say is that, you, you, Timothy, you, you are right, um, that the academic guild, and, and it's and honestly, it's, it's really more than just liberal scholars. There are conservative scholars who don't think it's Solomon either. That is the, the consensus of the academic guild, but um, that is not the consensus of history. This is just modern scholarship. And there, one thing I will say about the academic guild is 
is that you know you can go out and read the, the the scholarly blogs and people who plug into this stuff and, and they're going to say solomon didn't probably didn't write the book but there's a reason the academic guild one thing we have to understand about them is that they have a great interest in in um sort of drumming up controversies <laughs> so that they have something to talk about and the, the evidence from the book is really really firm that this is this is solomon and the the only problem that we have here is he just doesn't name himself and there's a lot of good theories as to why he doesn't want to to name himself i'm with you timothy i think he just wants to um by by not naming himself he's putting forward other names that he wants us to think about so here we have the preacher this is a very significant um term in in the book of Ecclesiastes, you can tell by the name of the book. The name of the book is Ecclesiastes, and that is um, the the Septuagint's um, language. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that was the title of the book Ecclesiastes. And it's come over into English, and that comes from the preacher. This is Kohelet Ecclesiastes. Uh, and it's so it's the title, not only the title of the book, but it's used three times in the beginning of Ecclesiastes, and then and then it's used three times at the end of Ecclesiastes. It's used once in the middle of the book, so it's used seven times. And what it does seem to indicate is that we're in a churchly setting, we're in an ecclesial setting, and what he's doing is he's wanting to draw the people around the people of God around him in a congregational setting. So that they hear this life that he's proposing to them. That's right. I and just to build on on what you're saying, and to kind of show people this, Ecclesiastes is the name of the book. Ecclesia is the word that mean in Greek that means church, and so you have these words like um, the ecclesiastical year. Do you kind of hear the same, the name Ecclesiastes, or um, what are some other Ecclesiastical just means church. So this is this is definitely an assembly. This is a congregation. And if if we can, it's evoking a, an assembly or congregation in probably in front of the temple. And that's going to become significant, especially when we get into, into verse two. So you got to think in your head like this amazing work of architecture in the background. Solomon's temple and you, you know the bleeding of the the sacrificial animals and Solomon the doves and all his glory this is a whole thing and and he's called people around and now he's the preacher in in, in this church assembly uh and, and that that's going to become important especially because you know one of the big questions about this book and we have to talk about it here especially is how where do we see Christ in this book and we're going to we're first of all going to see Christ in in the lineage of Solomon so he's he's the son of David he's the son of David he, he's the king in Jerusalem and and this is I don't want to get too far into it but this it's important to understand that this isn't a secular book in any sense this this is a book that's preached literally probably in front of the temple. And that's gonna be important for understanding it. 
probably the first time it's preached, Solomon is there at the temple laying it down for God's people. So right. it, exactly. And this is, I, I think we need to do a little excursion here on Christ in Ecclesiastes, because I, I think you can read and go, oh, this guy, I, I was just taught, we, I had a really great conversation with somebody tonight. It really is easy to read Ecclesiastes and, and just say, this guy, this guy is just depressed and this guy is just kind of out of it. And, but this is, this is Jesus. So let's just start with how Jesus wants us to interpret the Bible. Let's kind of back out and think this is this Jesus. This would have been in Jesus Bible. And this is what, this is the claim that he made. This is from John chapter five. Um, and he's, and he's teaching. He says, you study the scriptures diligently. So he's talking about the Old Testament. And because you think that in them, you have eternal life. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. So the Old Testament is centered on Jesus Christ. So we, we want to, we call this having a hermeneutic. When we, when we look at the Old Testament, it is important for us to, to see Christ. So, so scripture is more than just about teaching. It's more than just about rebuking. It's more than just about correcting. It is centered on jesus christ now this this brings us to our our um amen amen it is in jesus christ <laughs> oh you're gonna say more <laughs> go you're not done go off preach a little bit preach a little bit come on <laughs> well i just wanted to bring i want to bring christ into this book and so what i'm gonna do this is a notable podcast right so i'm gonna i'm gonna put a note in here let's see if this is gonna work um prophet priest and king okay this, these are lutheran categories and oh boy i can't spell here we go and king can everybody see that we have that right here prophet priest and king we have the the prophet is the teacher the preacher i by the way most english tran translations call him the preacher he's the preacher he's in an ecclesial setting he he's he's a prophet he's also a priest right because right behind him is the temple. And I'm going to make some a greater connection with the temple in just a second, but we got to hold off for verse, verse two. And he's also the king. And so this is, in every sense, like, like Jesus, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, one greater than Solomon. One greater than Solomon. And who is that? Well, Jesus. Jesus is, is going to be the, great, the greater son of David and Solomon, and we're evoking everything that is coming in Jerusalem, the, the sacrificial uh, acts of Jesus on the cross, the, the lineage of the Messiah, and, and the teachings. So like, even from the very first verse, this is a Christ-centered book. Did I make the case? I really hope I did. <laughs> I, I hope you did too. We, this, is a, this is a really important point to stop and help help all of us just meditate on Christ. And there, there's a, uh, an important scholar. Um, his name is Sidney Gradanus, and I'm probably massacring his name, and I do apologize if I just <laughs> did that. But he, um, he's, he's done probably the most work on thinking through the connections between Christ um, and, and in the Old Testament, then and and then how to connect that up, him to the the New Testament and drawing 
it all together so that there's continuity between the Old Testament and, and the New Testament. And he has seven ways to find Christ in various scriptures. Um, not all of them are here. I, I'd like to just give a, a brief rundown on it because I think this is, this is going to be helpful for, for our listeners. The, the first is you can find Christ in the, he, he calls it the redemptive historical narrative. So you, you find Christ in the way that God moves and acts and intervenes in history to save sinners. And so the stories about how God is intervening um, in human life to save us. And so that we see Christ in those things and in the development of, of salvation history. Um, we're going to talk about that just a little bit in a second. So I'm going to hold off comments about that, but we definitely are going to see the creation narrative and we're going to see judgment, um, the judgment narrative um, here in Ecclesiastes. The second one is, is called, he calls it promise fulfillment. And that is like specific messianic prophecies. There are none in Ecclesiastes. You, you don't see any specific prophecies of Christ um, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. The third is typology. Um, a type of Christ is a, is a person or an institution or an act that points to Christ. Um, and that's where we're at here in this verse is Solomon absolutely as the forefather of Jesus points to Christ. So Solomon is a type of Christ. Um, there, I'll go really fast through the last ones. There's analogy. So you look at similarities between the teachings of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll, we'll point out those similarities as we go along. There's longitudinal themes. Um, so in other words, as, as the Bible progresses, they have the same motifs, the same ideas. We'll point those out as we go along as well. Um, next, there's New Testament references. So the New Testament does cite the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to point those out as we go along. Um, and then finally, there's interesting contrasts. Huge. Can I just build on what you just said, Jonathan? Yeah, yeah. It One of the most interesting citations of Ecclesiastes in the New Testament is in the book of Romans. <laughs> That's right. Romans chapter yeah. three, I think it is. Romans chapter three. That's right. So Romans, Huge. if we're going to talk about Christ, we have to talk about Romans chapter three, objective justification. Um, and guess what Paul quotes from? Ecclesiastes. This is yeah. not a crisis book. And somebody chatted Ooh. in, um, safe to say Christ is a type and shadow in the old and reveal the new yes 100% 100% i i want to i want to make one last comment about christ timothy and and maybe you can build on this too my at the end of the pod just hang on we're going to get further in this at the end of the podcast but my biggest meditation here is that christ has to be the answer to this book there is no other answer Christ is just like Solomon in that he gets into the nitty gritty doubts and fears and sins and injustices of life. He is, he is the answer to this book. Just like Solomon, he goes where almost nobody, like nobody else in the Bible asks these questions the way that Solomon does. Jesus goes right into the mess and muck of, of human filth and he redeems it. And Solomon is doing that in this book too. 
um, it, it, he just, Jesus, Jesus goes even further. He, he comes, he comes, you know, Solomon starts off in the kingship and he goes right into the muck of, of normal human life. Jesus comes from the high kingdom of heaven, from his throne there. And he comes right into the muck of human life in the incarnation and he redeems us all. Same story. Amen. We could just we could just quit right now in the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Christ, yeah, he's here. He's here. Just put Jesus on the cross in the empty tomb, and we've done our job, right? Uh, but no, we got we 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 do need to get it to to verse two. And I honestly, this is the theme. Verse two is the theme of of the book of Ecclesiastes, and um, there is I got surprisingly a ton to say about this verse and i am not even sure exactly how to start but i guess we just have to start and just notice a couple things of all there's a there's a word that's used in there five times if you count it up five times and the english translations um king james famously translates vanity vanity the NIV, we got the NIV up in front of you there. Meaningless, meaningless. Uh, that is an abstraction. <laughs> the The word is actually Havel. Give 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 us a rundown on the word Havel, real quick, Jonathan. Well, I know you breath. did some work it's, on this. It's 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 breath. It's it's probably. I don't want to make too sharp a distinction here, but there, you know, it's not ruach. Ruach is a life giving breath. It's a it's an intake. But Hevel um, smacks more of the carbon dioxide you breathe out. It's not good for anything. It's 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 a vapor. It's a breath. It's it's a smoke. And um, like like you say, Timothy, the the struggle here is how do you translate that? Um, and the NIV is is um, you know I I, I don't mean say this in judgment of the NIV translation. It's just a comment, but the NIV is obviously not trusting the poetic abilities of, 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 the, of the readers. And so what they're doing, instead of trans, translating it straight and just saying breath of breaths, people read that, go, what's he talking about breaths? The NIV is trying to make meaning out of it. And so they're saying, what does the breath mean? And they're saying breath just means it's nothing. It's, it's meaningless. It's, it's, it's weightless. It's, it's futility. It's, it's emptiness. This translation follows um, Jerome's tradition. It's a, it's a very dark understanding of the word breath. There are some translators that, that want to understand it in a different way, but I happen to agree with it, actually. I think this is a very dark, um, it's a very dark poem, and um, it, it does start in a very dark place. Um, yeah. One, I mean, one thing that, like, Timothy, talk about the superlative. This is a superlative is what it is. Well, I'll just say this, like, nothing can prepare you for this. There's no Bible book like this. They're just, you can't, nothing prepares us for this. Just say, this is empty. It's, it's, but like, the, I don't even, I, you know, you said you agree with the translation. I don't know if they do a great job. I don't know if they do a great job. The way that Hebrew works is when you when you link up two words that the, and you put the same word, repeat it, it becomes a superlative. So, like, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of this. 
um, song of songs. We do this in English too, which means this is the song. It's like the best song. It's the top song. This Ever. is the number one yeah. on the charts song. Like this is the song of all songs. And um, holy of holies. So like some places are holy, but there's a holy of holies. And some people actually think, and I don't think it's wrong to think this way, to make this connection, because I made this connection with the ecclesial setting, and I was kind of making a big deal out of this. Because right behind Solomon, if he's giving this sermon at the temple, which, you know, it's a good place to give a sermon, the Holy of Holies is right there. And then Solomon comes out in his sermon and says, breath of hevel of hevel breath of breath vanity of brand vanity meaninglessness of meaninglessness so this is this is the the most meaningless of meaningless he's saying and then he says it not once he the niv says utterly meaningless but what that like we're right here this is the same thing he just says it again meaninglessness of meaninglessness okay and then he says the teacher Meaninglessness of meaninglessness. Everything is meaninglessness. Now, I want to. Can I build my case, Jonathan, for intertextuality? You have to. You have to. I have to. Yeah, you have to. You have to do this. So, um, (laughs) we're going to see if we can do this now. Okay. This is a huge verse. I I don't. Oh, man. Now, not only is it a sledgehammer, but you have to make the connections. Yeah. And this is fun. Like, this is is fun. (laughs) This is fun. Um, want to get to interpret the to use uh, inner and you don't want to make lists what happened <laughs> are we good yeah and somebody said lord of lords king of kings exactly yeah, so good um yeah exactly so one of the ways that um we can make textual links with other biblical stories is through intertextuality and you don't really want to make links that aren't there. Okay. So you don't want to make stuff up like what's behind um, Solomon's words here. Let's not make it up. So one of the things you want to do when you're interpreting the Bible is get, try to see if you can get some interpretive momentum. So it's like a sled going down a hill. Like, is this, is this picking up speed or am I just making stuff up? And anyone who's listening can see, like, is this sled, are there some intertextual links here or not? Are we getting some momentum? But I got a bunch of reasons why we want to read um, this verse and really the rest of the book with Genesis chapters one through four in our hearts. And so here I go, here I go. Um, Havel, this is... This is incredible. Hevel, first of all, ties to Genesis chapter three. And this is going to take us east of Eden. We're going east of Eden with Cain. Because when the fall into sin happens, everything is frustrated. Everything. And, and God did it. Like you, you, He cursed work. He said it's going to be hard now. He cursed labor. He... Uh, everything about the world changed. And if you want to hear more about that, go to Romans 8, where it says, all creation groans. So 
This is a book that lives east of Eden in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16 with Cain. Like the world's broken, sin has come into the world, and now everything's messed up. And so we get to Hevel. So we get to Hevel. Now, this is this is an incredible link. Now, um, Cain, when Cain was born, this, this is where we're going to pick up a lot of momentum. We're going to get this sled going down the hill. Um, and it's going faster <laughs> and faster. It's <laughs> Oh, my goodness. It's not winter yet. <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. Let's pick it up. It's close, though. And yeah, it's winter. So... So Cain is born and Eve, Eve calls him Cain. Now, now Cain means um, the Lord has provided. The Lord has provided. And some translations of his name actually lead us to believe that Eve believed that the Messiah was Cain. Okay, I'm going to let that sink in for a little bit. The Messiah was Cain. And obviously, <laughs> and maybe Oops. you can hear my dog barking. We Oops. get possums at night in the back of our, in our little tiny New York City yard. So that's what's happening. There's a possum walking by right now. <laughs> but so, so where was I? Where was I? Okay, so Eve's believing that Cain is the Messiah. Okay. Then, then Cain kills Abel. It's a little bit later. Something about Cain, after she gives the name, makes her realize this, 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 this son is not the promised seed that's going to crush Satan's head. Not yet. Okay? And um, probably he was sinful, right? And there it is. He's not, he's not apparently he's not the Messiah. So then, so then Abel's born. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Abel, let's see if we can make this connection. That's a transliteration of the Hebrew. Hevel. Do you hear the word in there? So it's the same exact word that you have in here, right here in Ecclesiastes. The same his, exact his name, his name means breath. Yeah. L let's just let that sink in for a second. So Eve thinks Cain's the savior. Then her next boy she calls vanity. She's delusioned. She's she's disillusioned. <laughs> I guess like it, that must have been a harsh well, wake up call it, for her. But it turns out you that know? he was. It turns out that his life was. Yeah. All of ours are. You know. So That's like part of what's going on here. Here here's the big point. Outside of the big book of Ecclesiastes, the word Havel comes up the most in Genesis chapter four. That like all of a sudden. Eve figures out, oh, the Lord's not going to fix this mess we made, not on our timetable. So now we have to start to understand what it means to live outside the garden. And, and now we're moving into Ecclesiastes, because that's what this book is about. This is about li uh, living outside east of Eden. 
I got I got a couple more and then I'm going to let you take it away, especially with the name of God, because I know you have some stuff on that. But the, I don't know how the rabbis do their math, but I think what they do is they they take they take this phrase and they square it like if you like you have two and then they two squared or something like that. But they will say that what they when they count up the the futility, the 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 have words in there, that they come to the, the number seven. I gotta ask a rabbi about this someday. And then for 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 Jewish people, that then represents the days of creation. I, I don't know if I so buy Jewish that people quite, are making that, making making the connection there. Yeah. We're yeah, we're it's not crazy to make the connection with and Heather did too, like we with, with that opening way that we we opened right. the podcast today, like to read Genesis one through four or one through five together with the book of Ecclesiastes is totally appropriate. And there's one more reason why. And the Lord here is never called the Lord, not even a single time. You know what he's called in the entire book? He's, God is called the creator, the creator. So we want to um, read this with, with creation. I know you wanted to say some stuff about that, John. And hopefully the right. sled's like flying down the hill now. Yeah, so this is this is the only narrative. This is the only narrative that we have, the only story that, that we have referenced here in Ecclesiastes. And uh, that's clear. Um, Yahweh or the Lord, the Lord's covenant name is is vacant from the book. It's 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 nowhere to be found. Also missing from this book, if you think about it, is there's no reference to the Sinaitic covenant. There's no reference to the Abrahamic covenant. There's no Mosaic law um, anywhere. And uh, we did see a reference here that, to the divinic uh, monarchy, but we don't have that developed in any kind of significant way. The only thing that we do have developed is the creation narrative. Now there's, there's a couple of reasons that, 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 that this could be. One is, uh, what I'll call cultural apologetics, like um, much, of, and I, I'm in agreement with this, much of the scholars are going to say that the book was written to reach out to surrounding nations who wouldn't have had that, that biblical history that the people of God would have had. But what they did have is um, a, they were created people. They were all created people. They weren't all people of the Exodus, but they were created people under under the creator and so a lot of people are thinking this is a form of cultural apologetics and by the way um it still works today uh, if you go on the internet there are tons of people i remember when i was in college this was one of my favorite books like there i was my little existential squirming south and um maybe some of you are, are listening to this are thinking yeah i love you know I, well when i was in college i loved Ecclesiastes. what i was having my doubts i loved ecclesiastes and you, you know, Google it, you'll see it. I'm sure it's on Twitter and all kinds of stuff. Um, people love this book, they can relate to this book. Um, so there is, there is some cultural apologetics going on here. The second thing that's going on here is um, we are in a specific kind of biblical genre um, called wisdom literature. And it, wisdom literature, just by, the, by virtue of its genre, does not deal a lot with you know, the stories of Sinai or stories of, of, of the Exodus. Elizabeth Act 
Ochtemeyer um, has a wonderful definition of wisdom literature. I want to read it to you so you can kind of get this in your head. Wisdom is the result of practical experience and the careful observation of both the natural and human worlds. Out of the chaos of a human experience, wisdom finds customary orders in the world, ways in which human beings and natural phenomena ordinarily behave. So wisdom literature is, is not gonna deal with these big salvific narratives. What it's going to do is it's going to look at the nuts and bolts of, of human life as it's observed out in the world. But having said that, there's a major, major qualification to that. And that is that the Genesis narrative is invoked and evoked multiple times. I'm gonna rifle this off because we need to move quickly. But for those of you who wanna to listen to this back and do a little bit of Bible work on your own, do it. There's a connect. So you ready? God is creator and sovereign. Ready? Genesis 1, Ecclesiastes 3.14, and Ecclesiastes 8.17. God in the beginning, um, time, timeliness and seasons, that's Genesis 1. And it's also Ecclesiastes 3. Good and goodness being in the world, that's Genesis 1 and 2. And that's Ecclesiastes 2.24, 3.12 to 14, 5 and 18. God made human beings upright, that's Genesis 1 and 2. And that's also Ecclesiastes 7.29. Humans being made for God. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And that's Ecclesiastes 12.13. The fallen is sin and curse. Genesis 3, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2, Ecclesiastes 1.15 and 7.13. Finally, mur uh, two more. Um, murder. Genesis 4 and Ecclesiastes 7.20, 7.29, 8.11, and 9.3. And the last one is God is creator. Genesis 1 and Ecclesiastes 12 and other places as well. And we, Can we make our case. Are we east of Eden or what? <laughs> we better move on. We're east of we Eden. And, you know, we got to move on. We do need to move on. So let's take a deep breath. And I'm not seeing anybody on the chat. So we're let's get into verse three. We'll get into the verse three. And I just want to point this out that in verse three, and we're, this is a notable, so we're noting this. Everybody can see that on their screens. This verse three says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? And this is, this is what we would call the programmatic question. So we, we, we've now seen the author, his lineage, his titles. We've seen the thematic verse, and now we're getting the programmatic question. And this is an important little question. There's, there, we learn a lot of information from it. Um, when you read the Bible, by the way, whenever you see a question, what the question is doing rhetorically, it, this is important I think for us to get, if we want to read the Bible sensitively, is creating a gap. Uh, and what, what the biblical author and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wants us to do is, is learn to, an to, to answer that question. What, what do people gain? from all their labors at which they, they toil under the sun. And, and Solomon's going to give his best answer to that. He, it's, it's not just like a real question. He really does want us to think about that. He, he, and he wants to think about it in his book. This, this is the programmatic question. 
it, it's a huge question. What is the meaning of life? Why are you here? What is the gain? What is the meaning? What is the profit? Uh, what is the advantage of being alive? And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a massive question. And I, I want to stop and just, if, if anybody is listening to this and asking themselves that question, I want to stop and celebrate that. I, I think that that's a work of God's mighty spirit inside of, of people when they actually stop and consider their own lives. Uh, I, I was reading a story yesterday from um, a wonderful Christian author, also, by the way, the, uh, the, one of the only Christian um, great authors uh, in American history. Uh, her name is Flannery O'Connor. She writes um, a stunning story um, it's called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And she's, she's a poet in her own right, too. But she, she, she says this. Uh, I, I wrote it down. It was, I thought it was so good. She said, it's some, now this is, she's a Southern woman, and so she writes like a Southerner. So she, it's some that can live their whole life out without asking about it. And it's others that has to know why it is. So she's saying there's two kinds of people in the world. There are those who never think about their own life, like what their purpose is at all. And there are others who have to know why it is. And Solomon's trying to get us all into that second camp. What, a, why, why? Right, he's, he's, re, he's creating a rhetorical gap. Before, before we go into what I think is a poem, and I know that's somewhat debated among the commentators and the scholars. I want to just look at this little phrase right here, Jonathan, this phrase under the sun, under the sun. And it's an important little phrase. It shows up um, 30 times. This is, this is what we would call um, Solomon's imminent frame. So he's, he's looking at things apart from God. So not above the sun, but under the sun. A, that's a really this is his point of en entry and this is also what we would call to use a big technical term but it's a term i think that we should all use is epistemology so this is we might call as epistemology so the way that he gets at knowledge the way that he gets at knowledge his epistemology is is um autonomous so this is this is the scientific thinker this is I got to see it. I got to experience it. Uh, I, I, this is how I'm going to try to answer that question under the sun. And, you know, um, people used to think that epistemology kind of worked like this. This is how we make meaning. This is how we understand things. That the human brain is like buckets and you just, you have an experience you put in the bucket. And this is how we go categorizing things in our head and we make meaning out of it. And it, a, a, a theologian uh, and philosopher named Popper came along and said, no, um, what it is is really a searchlight where we, we come to things with our own frame. We, and if, if it's outside our frame or the way that we understand the world, it's in darkness, it's in, in complete darkness. And so... Solomon's search, if we want to look at this as epistemology like Popper did, is we're going to, sometimes in his book, he's going to try to see things as like a secular person, 
right? Like apart from God and God's going to be off in the shadows and the darkness. And, and then all of a sudden, like that coal miner you talked about last week, we'll look up and see God. So I, I think it is important that his, his epistemology is under the sun. And that, but then sometimes we'll get to see the sun itself. Exactly. So when, when, when you read the book and it's so dark and it's so depressing, it's because he's put an iron dome between humanity and God so that you actually can't see or experience God in the moment. And he's doing that so we can see better what it's like with life without God. That's supposed to push us to life with God, but I'm getting ahead of myself right now. Now we got to look at the poem. Right. Did you? Yeah, we got to look at the poem. Do you want to lean into that a little bit, Jonathan? I do. I do. So it, this is be a good chance just to look at this, look at the screen there, open up your Bible. I do just want to point out a couple of, of things about the poem. First of all, uh, if you if we just look at the poem from verses four through 11, um, notice that what we have there are bookends. So we have human bookends, and you see that he's talking about the generations. So you have people on, on both sides of, of, uh, of this poem. Then you can see on the top half of the poem, let's see, it's verses four through seven. What you have is a meditation on um, life east of the creation, east of Eden. And you can see that he's, he's really running through the cosmos. It's, I, I think it's a wonderful poem. It's really very beautiful um, in its own way. But he meditates on earth, sun, wind, and water. So he's, he's meditating on different aspects of the creation. By the way, you can compare this to the way the Greeks thought about the cosmos. They, they thought about earth, fire, air, water. And they wanted to tie those four elements together with um, something called quintessence. Uh, so this is this is Hebrew, this is Hebrew thought. This is biblical thought, and so we got earth, sun, wind, and water. And j- just this is a, I love poetry, and I love how Solomon has so carefully structured this. You will notice in verse six that he does have the four points of the compass. So he references four. He's got north and south, and then he's got round and round. So that's the east and the west. We all know that. That's how the wind blows. Um, so you got all four points of, of the compass. Then, then I want I, I, I got one last comment here, um, and then Timothy, I want, want want you to take over some some commentary here. You notice after he does his his comments about the creation east of Eden, you you move into verse eight, and now he starts reflecting on human life in the cosmos. So now this is human life in this in this in this fallen world. He calls it, he calls it wearying. And so, um, you, you know, I want to, I want to say a whole lot more about that in a second, you know, how wearying it can be. Um, he says, there's no satisfaction. He says, there's no satisfaction. Uh, the, 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 the ravenous, he has this picture of the ravenous, I call it the ravenous eye and the ravenous ear. <laughs> there's never good enough of seeing or hearing. So they're ravenous. Um, they're never satisfied. Um, and then you have what I'll call historical stasis. So there isn't historical dynamism. There's historical 
stasis. There's, there's a lack of true development um, in history. You can see everything's very circular. Um, and then all of a sudden humanity is gone without a trace. People are just erased in the poem. And that's the end of the poem. It's a, it's a beautiful poem. I'm just going to add, it, maybe, can you see me marking up the Bible as we go? Can you see that, Jonathan? Are you yeah, I can. That? I can. It's, so what I did bit. there, just to explain anyone who's watching this, and I marked it up, Jonathan, as you went, but I used colors specifically because I want you to see something. The green talks about the generations. Those are the bookends. Then what you have, I'm, I'm gonna, I think this is a chiasm actually. So chiasm is something that worked. It's, it's like it builds itself into um, what we might call the significant middle. So we, we have these gen generations on the bookends and then we have um, really like the repetitive nature of creation, first of all. And you did a really good job pointing that out in verses five to seven. But then you have the repetitive nature of human history. So it, it and, and human sense, ability of senses, like, um, so he's all of creation, like all of creation, the way it functions, and then the human being as well. So then the significant middle, and I'm going to use a different color for this, would be um, right here. Right here. So we're back, we're kind of back again to verse two. Like what, what is life like east of Eden? Uh, it's repetitive, it's mundane, it's ordinary, it's wearisome. It goes over and over and over again. Or to say it with the words of verse two, it's hevel of hevel. That's, that's the big, that's the prologue. That's the prologue. Now, <laughs> I don't want to leave people there. I don't want to leave people there. Oh, we can't. Somebody put in the we chat. Can't. Yeah, this this is like somebody put in the chat. When a person ponders verse three, can it cause one to question the state of their salvation? I suppose that it could, but I don't want it to. And this is this is where we want to go back to Jesus. And this is this is what so many Christians in the past have noticed. Um, and maybe I'll, I think you know the answer, Jonathan. But when when or who broke the repetitive, endless cycle of death? You're gonna make me say it, Jesus. <laughs> you know, I mean, this, this is this is it's the it, Advent. You know, like you put this note down, and I, I'm just gonna read it. I'm stealing it from you because it's so good. Augustine said this um, about the Christ event: the repeatable is defeated by the unrepeatable life of Christ. So this is where this is where we always want to go with the book of Ecclesiastes that in in Genesis 1 everything's good, in fact it's very good. Sin comes into the world, everything's broken, it leads to frustration. Christ comes into the world as the promise to break us out of this. There's more we want to say about this, I know, but I wanted to get get to to Jesus um, at least that far. Well, if if people, I think we should finish it. I know we got maybe ten more minutes, but I think we should finish it. 
Go ahead. Yeah. How do you want to end it? Oh, you want to end on Jesus? No, I want to finish this whole podcast. I want to finish the plan we got here. Yeah, go. Well, I I want I so I I call this the pragmatics here. Like, what is what is this poem supposed to do to us? I, I want to think about that for a second. We've looked at just to review very briefly. We we've got repetition. We've got these absolutist claims. Um, everything's weariness. There's never enough. Nothing's new. Nobody remembers. Well, you, you have this sense of circularity. There's a lack of novelty, a lack of progress. He says there's no remembrance, by the way. That would be very shocking um, for the, the mind of God's people, the minds of God's people. Put it, they, in their imagination, they're putting up memorials. They're, they're doing that all the time. And they're thinking that there's going to be some kind of remembrance. Solomon's shocking our senses with that. And then He's, he, one thing that you'll notice is he's contrasting, I'll call it the um, within limits, right? Only God is truly eternal, but um, creation in a, in a sense is, is, is forever next to us. So there's, there's the, he calls it the earth remains forever. There's this eternality of creation versus the transitory nature of our lives. So that's the review. Why does he do this? What now? we're under the sun, right? We're under the sun. We got a dome over our heads. We can't see God. He's trying to help us see what life is like when we can't see salvation history. We just, all we see is, is, is life going on the way it is. I see, so I was on, this is where I want to do some, some comments just, just about our culture and where we're at today. This is how everybody thinks. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm more sensitive to it now, Timothy, or if, if, or, or if our, our culture is more um, nihilistic than ever before. But right across the street, there, we, we have these massive skeletons. I mean, they're just massive skeletons. And, and it's, it's gross. Like, it grosses me out. We, we walked into it. I was walking the dog with my wife. They have the, the biggest, like, cemeteries put, our people are putting in their own yards for, for Halloween. And it's and, it, and it's almost like death is just like whatever, whatever. And I, I just, wow, um, it's amazing how how people look at death and they're just like whatever, you know. What it, 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 it's fine, but it's not fine. And Solomon is 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 waking us up to that, and he's wanting us to see um, what life is like in in that in that frame. Yeah. It's a good, just to build on your comments there. This is, I, I live the parsonage here that Sure Foundation has. For me, it's a wonderful place to live. Thank you, Sure Foundation, for that. But across a kind of kitty corner from where I live is um, a crematorium. And it every it, it's a great place to live because it, it, keeps, it keeps you really humble. And every Monday night, this is what happens. I'm Usually I'm around with Amanda and um, at about, about nine or 10 at night, we hear these loud noises, boom, 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 boom. And she was like, oh, they're dropping off the bodies every week. Every week they drop off more bodies. They're about to burn them. And, and we know it. We know it. we can see the smoke going up. Um, so yeah, this is, death is not, it's not a joke. We, but we have a savior. Thank God for that. I, 
there, I, I wanted to move in a different direction. This is important. Um, sometimes it's interesting to think an anthropologically about the way we view time. And Solomon does do some, some thinking on that. Uh, he, he imagines, some people think that even Hindus kind of get from uh, just their own view of nature under the sun, that imminent frame, that it does seem like if, if we didn't have a calendar that said, this is 2021 and we're going to progress on to 2022, it, you could look around and be like, everything is just circling. It's just circling. And nothing's really getting better. Nothing's really changing. And Solomon is definitely commenting on that. It's, this is just, I think Tim Keller made this observation about late moderns. A lot of people forget, like, where do, where do, where does progressivism get its vision that you can be on the right side of history and that we're like the world's slowly becoming a better place. And that's actually a Christian idea. It's a, that might offend some people, but the only the only way that we get there is by seeing that there's a talus to it all, that that there's salvation, that there is it was a, a way to justification. Yeah. And so so Solomon is despairing of that here because he's in that imminent frame, that under the sun frame. But but Christianity, um, yes, the world is a dying place. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't think sinners are suddenly going to not be sinners anymore by any means. But we do believe that Jesus is coming again. And so we are progressing like the dates are going up to that, to that great return. Yeah. Right. I want to at and, least say that. That's why. So we, instead of a cyclical view of time, we have a linear view of time, right. which is very Western, very Christian um and the watches that count up and stuff like that so i think we can start wrapping up this podcast a little bit we there's a great comment from somebody in here the question here so the book is about how we need to retrain our minds and how to let go in this life and put our love and faith and value toward christ and that's exactly right because you read this poem and and you go why am I chasing money? Why am I chasing my career? Why am I chasing this project? Why am I chasing my identity? Why am I chasing this? Why am I chasing that? What's the point? Nobody's going to remember anyway. And when you, when you get to that point spiritually, uh, what it does is it rips away your, our false gods. It rips away our false philosophies. It rips away our false um, ways of walking. And what it does is is it enables us finally to see the truth. There's only one true way to live. And this is, and the comment there is fantastic. And I wanna put it like this, there's a great, great, um, fabulous writer, guy's name is Derek Kidner, and he comments about Ecclesiastes. I don't know where he stuck this comment, but he says that a lot of times in Ecclesiastes, the synthesis lies beyond the page. And so, so, in other words, when you read this, the, Solomon is expecting that you're going to go there. You are absolutely going to go there. It's, 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 it's just like the book of Esther. Um, some people get so offended, God is not named in Esther at all. 
the, the literature is designed for you to read it and then you go there. So uh, Timothy, you, you brought up uh, one, of, one of my points. I, I got a couple more I wanna add to it. When you look at the apparently aimless, mindless creations, just rivers are running, wind is going and stuff like that. It doesn't look like anything is going anywhere. That should evoke in your mind that God has a plan. And by the way, that's Ecclesiastes chapter three. <laughs> when, when, you, when you look at this, this city with a dome on top, humanity's just iron dome, you can't see God. That should evoke in your mind the inbreaking of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came down and broke into this human condition. And that, that, that last one, this the, the seeming circularity of life, like you think about that, like if I die, is anybody going to care in 10 years? The world's just going to keep going on. Oh, no. Oh, no. This isn't circular. Christ broke in with his unrepeatable life, his death, his resurrection. And this is my last point. It's actually Chrysostom's. He's one of the church fathers. What should we do about this? He says this, and he's commenting on these verses. It's a wonderful little quote. He says, let us choose God's joy by choosing here, not what is pleasant, but what is profitable. So every Christian reads this, like Solomon asks the question, what's profitable? And he doesn't have anything, but he's meaning to evoke in us what actually is. What is profitable? Jesus is. Let's leave it there. Okay. Leave it there. All right. <laughs> okay. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll be actually next week. We're not here, are we? We're off next oh, week. Oh, no, that's right. We're yeah. off next two. Yeah. We're, we're back in two weeks, everybody. We're back in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Notable Podcast. You can check out our other seasons on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. If you are enjoying this ministry and are so moved to support it, please visit us at www.thenotablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.